0: Enter verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, remember who's Israel? Israel, when it's a person in the Bible, is who? It's Jacob. Israel, when it's a geographic area, is the country we know is modern day Israel or land of Canaan in the Bible. So here, Israel says Jacob said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so he's going to send out, see kind of the management role, right? You've got Joseph, favored son, bright coat not working up a sweat, brothers are probably out doing the sheaves of grain thing, working up a sweat, and he's going to go check on them, and here you see verse 17 and following. They moved on from there, and the man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brothers and found him near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. You can see the family dynamics are going well here. So they're continuing to not have a lot of brotherly love for one another. There's not a lot of unity in the household. There's fracturing, there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's resentment, nothing any of us can identify with in any of our extended family circles. But just kind of imagine it with me for a moment, that there might be some drama and difficulty in the family circle, and that's what you've got here with his brothers. It might not be plotting in the field to kill, but there's definitely some imaginary conversations taking place that are an awful lot like that. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So here's what a cistern is not a 2016 reality we know a lot about, but it's an underground like cavern, underground cave, where they kept water. So that would have been a common visual sight when you were out in the fields in Joseph's day. There had been like a rock-type cover, a manhole cover, and underneath would have been a large cavern, most often filled with water. And the idea that the brothers have is, hey, let's take a Joseph out once and for all. They're tired of looking at his coat. Let's slaughter one of these animals, dip his coat in the blood of the animal, throw him down in the cistern, throw the rock over it, And he'll be forgotten. No one's ever going to know what happened to Joseph. We'll go back and tell dad that Joseph died as an attack of a ferocious animal, and all will be great. That's the story that's going on in their minds. Verse 21, when Reuben heard this. Now, who's Reuben? Reuben is the oldest son, firstborn of Jacob. He tried to rescue him, rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So you see, God has already set up something here for uh, Joseph that he's got someone looking out for him. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Why is that an important point? Because if there was a bunch of water in it, he was going to be drowning in no amount of time. So this particular cistern was dry. So it'll help us understand the rest of the story here. So he's down there in the cistern. Brothers have taken the robe. They're planning on dipping the robe in some animal's blood. And lo and behold, some Midianite merchants come by. Verse 28. His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels. 20 shekels is 20 50 cent pieces. Now... Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you feel about your brother or sister. Maybe you felt like 20, 50 cent pieces is about, that's basically what they're saying he's worth about, yeah, 10 bucks to us of silver to the Ishmaelites. And they took him to Egypt. So instead of, so they kind of heed Reuben's advice. Hey, let's not kill him. Let's make a few bucks out of this deal. Let's sell him to these Midianites who were going to take him on a wagon ride headed to who knows where, Egypt here. And then we'll take the robe that's been dipped in blood and we'll take it back to dad and we'll tell dad Joseph's dead, attacked by an animal. Jacob is grieving, thinking his son has died. Remember, it's his favored son, one of the children he had with Rachel. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So first observation from the story today is that giftedness doesn't come prepackaged with character. The possession of spiritual gifts doesn't automatically equal the deployment of those gifts. There's some strengthening of the beams of the interior world of our lives that's a necessary precursor to the deployment of whatever spiritual gifts, leadership and influence and responsibility that God wants to entrust us with, whether that's be it in the church setting, in a business setting, in an entertainment and sports setting, whatever it is. That there's this interior work that's needed to uphold the weight of the giftedness. And second observation now is that God does some of his best interior type work, scaffolding type work in cisterns and on wagon rides. Have you been in the cistern with the Lord before? Have you been in the cistern alone before? Cistern is a metaphor for those times in our lives when we land in the place, A, we never imagined being, it feels quite alone, quite dark, very difficult. We have no way out of seeing how we're going to get through what we're going through. We feel like we're alone in the bottom of the cistern, and we're asking, how did I get here? Why am I here? How long am I going to be here? I have no idea how I'm going to get out of here. That's a cistern-type reality. And do you know why God, He's certainly not the one causing the circumstances to occur like this in Joseph's life. But here's what I think Romans 8 is referring to. Romans 8 says God works all things together for what? for the good of those who love him. That doesn't mean everything is good. Not everything we experience is good. The betrayal that Joseph's experiencing at the hands of his brother is not good. But what God's saying is God can use that betrayal for something greater and more glorious. The hole in your soul is for the glory of God to shine through. He can use the hole. He can use the brokenness. He can use the mess to accomplish something. In this case, he's like, you know what? I'm going to use this cistern, Joseph, in your life. Because Joseph 17, obviously struggling with deploying his gifts, not having a lot of wisdom and discretion with what to do with those gifts, getting ahead of himself a bit. God says, let's spend some time in the cistern. I'll meet you there. And the conversation in the cistern isn't about what you're doing, what you're producing, it's about who you're being and becoming. Cistern-like dialogue is a being and becoming dialogue. Because God's not just interested in what Joseph will be doing. He is interested in that in all of our lives, what we'll be doing and how we'll be doing it. He's interested in the kind of people that will be doing it. He must talk about the being and becoming. That's interior stuff. That's scaffolding stuff. My first trip into the cistern, I was about 25. I'd been married for two years. Ken and I were married two years. And my dad came home to let the family know that he was leaving, that he had met someone else and wanted to start a life with someone else, that he had raised my brother and I, and it was time for him to move on. And in the wake of that kind of decision, the cascading amount of just brokenness with my mom, with my brother, with myself, with our families, and just standing there. And then within 12 months, Kendra's father had the same conversation with her mother and the family that he had met someone else, and he was exiting. So in the first three years of our marriage, both our fathers exited the family scene. And it's into the cistern that I went. And I talked to the Lord about, Lord, why? Why am I here? And you know, sometimes you end up in the cistern because of the sin of others. That's Joseph. Joseph ended there because of the sinful choices of others. Do you know that sometimes that's what happens to us? We're thrust into the cistern because of the choices others have made around us. And that's a whole other layer to the story, right? Then you've got to work through kinds of forgiveness issues and reconciliation issues. And then sometimes we're in the cistern because it's a self-inflicted cistern. Sometimes we made some pretty terrible decisions that landed us in the middle of the dark all alone at the bottom of that cave because it's pretty much on us. And then other times... It might not have been either of those. It's just simply living in the center of God's will lands you sometimes at places where you're going to live in the darkness of your aloneness because God's going to be there and God's got some work to do. And it's the kind of work that doesn't happen with the noise and distractions of life. I know for me there can be an in the air we breathe culturally, just kind of a, it's easy to drift into just being distracted. Like, I don't have to work at being distracted. I have to work at living a noisy life. I don't have to work at living full and fast. We just kind of drift, and that just comes natural to us these days. What I have to work at is being still and being quiet, and listening and paying attention to God. Those are things that I, I, I know for me, I got to work at those things. I don't drift into those things. I got to work at it. And guess what God says? Hey, Simpson, I've got a great place where I can get at some of that interior world. It's called the cistern. So at 25, there you are. There's all kind of family related stuff. And then a few years later, it was 2001 around here, and we had just moved into this facility. We just purchased the ground and relocated the church, and several new families were coming, and several new staff were being added, and lots of new ministries were going on. And and as a leadership group, we were just kind of tired from the long run it took to kind of get through all the building, construction, moving, transitioning. So it was just kind of a physically difficult time, which is an emotionally difficult time, probably emotionally vulnerable time as I look back at it. And then there was one of the staff members that we hired had decided that he had a better plan and vision for Eagle Church than anyone else around here. And I remember the meeting when he sat down with me, and he he also had the same meeting with Carrie, the founding pastor of Eagle, and he said that there was him and a group of other, a few staff and some other leaders and some other members of the church that just think it's time for uh, Eric and Kerry, time for you to move on and find something else to do with your lives. And that they had... Some bigger plans and visions and dreams for Eagle Church that didn't really involve us. And, and it was into the sister, and I went. I thought these were friends. I thought we were doing life together. I thought we were family. And I didn't think a family just kind of handled some things this way. And, and I just had all these questions. I'm like, Lord, how did I get here? What's going on with this? I'm just trying to serve you. Just trying to be faithful to what you've called us to do. And that group continued to be quite upset about things, so they rallied some folks together and took a handful of people and went off and started another church, just down the road. At least they attempted to start another church down the road. It didn't really last. it lasted about six months, and then it disbanded, and they all went their own ways. Because I think the base from which it was starting wasn't a spirit-led type base. It was probably a base more out of anger and frustration towards other things. That's never a good base to make those kinds of decisions and starts from. Into the cistern I went. Saying, Jesus, help. I don't understand this. Is this my new normal? I never wanted this new normal. What do I do with this? Where do we go from here? Blaise Pascal He's a writer, scientist, theologian from the 17th century. I put this in your notes. He said, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. There's a lot there, gang. There's a lot there to think about and live with, perhaps for the whole week. That wouldn't be a bad thing to live with right there. As a pastor, I feel like that is a consistent theme of those who show up in my office when life is unraveling, I could go back to Blaise Pascal's words here and go, I think our starting point might have been an inability to stay quietly in your own room. Which is why he writes this, the next paragraph, "...hence it comes people so much love noise..." And stir, hence it comes that the prison is so horrible a punishment, hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. Yet there is another secret instinct, hear this, a remnant of the greatness of our original nature, which teaches that happiness in reality consists only in rest, not in being stirred up. You see, giftedness doesn't come prepackaged with character. God knows the beams of our interior world are going to need a lot of work done. And often students, high schoolers are in here today, hey students, heads up, I think Joseph's a great profile for you guys in the season of life you're in. Because if you give yourself in your 20s to pay attention to the cistern-like Realities of learning to be still, of learning to handle solitude, of allowing the spirit to strengthen the scaffolding on the inside. If you steward the 20s well, then as your life spreads out in the 30s and 40s, you'll have a substance from which to draw from. There'll be a sustainability. You won't crash and burn when you get to your 40s and 50s and drive it off a cliff. And how can you see so many families and so many marriages and so many leaders just driving it off a cliff? I think a lot of it comes back to this. They were convinced at a much earlier age than perhaps God knew right then. They weren't ready. They were convinced they were ready, pushed all that to the side, and said, I'm gonna lead and rule in the way I want to lead and rule. And the scaffolding, the beams are too they're too thin, they're too small, they're too weak, they won't uphold the weight as the giftedness thrusts you into higher positions of authority and responsibility and decision-making and balancing work and family and ministry and all the things that come with it, and then crash and burn. I think when the gap between giftedness and character gets too wide for too long, set the timer, put it on the table, and simply wait. Implode is only a matter of when. It no longer becomes a question of if. And as one of your pastors, I'm greatly burdened about this for myself and for you, for all of us. Let's commit to be the kind of community that is patient with one another in the Spirit's work to develop on the inside of our own lives and this generation coming up what needs to be developed so that they can run the race with perseverance for the long haul that they can be in this thing for 40, 50, 60 years, that their marriages can be filled with more hope and more joy and more confidence in God at the end of the run than at the beginning or in the middle. Let's commit that together. Let's make a decision, and that that's the kind of investment we're going to make together in one another and in the structure of our life together. And that's going to require a patient endurance. Because we will default to act out of impatience. And I think about the number of times in my life how much heartache and sin has come out of acting out of impatience. And here in Joseph's life, he got a whole lot of heartache from acting out of impatience. Imagine what might have happened if he just kept his mouth shut with the dreams for a bit. But now he's thrust into all this stuff. God can use it. That's Romans 8. God will use it. Weave it together for something more glorious. The hole in your soul is for the glory of God to shine through. And eventually, Joseph does come up out of the cistern, because some of you this morning, perhaps it's the cistern in which you find yourself. Or maybe you're with Joseph when he came up out of the cistern. When he came up out of the cistern, where did he go? On a wagon ride, headed to who knows where. Boy, isn't that a commentary on life? Here's a commentary on life. You're going to hit the cisterns for who knows how long, and you're going to be on a wagon ride headed to who knows where. That's Real life. Students, that's real life. That's college life and beyond. That there are cistern-like realities coming because God cares an awful lot about who you're becoming, and he knows he's got to whittle away all the noise and all the distraction and thrust us in to the darkness of our aloneness and teach us how to learn to be still and be alone with him and get at these places in the inmost that need to be gotten to. God loves us enough to lead us into those places. It's out of love. It's not a discipline, it's out of love. He loves us enough not to leave us to our distracted and noisy, just run fast and full and busy and skate on giftedness for too long. You skate on gifts for too long at the bankruptcy of character. Implode is the issue. And the wake of destruction behind that. There are so many lives affected when leaders implode leaders of families, leaders of churches, leaders and organizations. When implode happens, there's just a wake of destruction and brokenness and heartache. And God loves us enough to say, turn the tide on this. And the way you're going to turn the tide is, you're going to head to a cistern. And you're probably going to be there longer than you want to be. And when you come up out of the cistern, you're probably going to be on a wagon ride. And you don't know where it's going. And you know how long you're going to be on that wagon ride. And you don't know where the story's going next. You don't see the next turn in the story. All you know is you're in the cistern. Now you're on the wagon. And in all of that, as I bring this to a close, Parker Palmer's quote, I put it in your notes, one of my favorites. The soul is like a wild animal. Tough, resilient, resourceful, savvy, self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places, but it's also shy, just like a wild animal. It seeks safety in the dense underbrush. If we want to see a wild animal, we know that the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, yelling for it to come out. But if we'll walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently at the base of the tree, and fade into our surroundings, the wild animal we seek might put in in appearance. I don't know where this morning finds you. Perhaps in the middle of a cistern. Perhaps on a wagon ride headed to who knows where. But the deeper work God does in all those realities is, do you know it's an invitation to draw the soul out to do some work in here. It's just kind of crashing through the woods of our lives. I love that image, right? We just kind of crash through the woods. Sometimes we come to church. Church, is a whole bunch of group of people just crashing through the woods when we come to church together. And you know what sometimes the gift of this space is, which is the gift of the next several minutes for us, is we're just gonna dial down the noise factor a little bit, allow the worship team and band to lead us through, allow music to help us in this, And to just be still and to be present to the Lord and to release the grip and to lift up our eyes and to surrender and to say, Jesus, help. I don't see. I didn't choose this reality. I don't know where this is going. I don't know how long I can stay in this. Jesus, help. The circumstances of our lives may not be well or good. Hear this now. But if we'll choose surrender, if we'll choose loosen the grip and relinquish control, if we'll choose to lift our eyes up, we're going to find what Joseph found. That the cistern isn't just dark. It's not just difficult. But in that cistern, God is there. He is there. He is with you. He is for you. And he is able the circumstances may not be well, but here's what we can declare in the middle of that dark. It is well with our soul because God is there. And you are not alone. And that will be enough for us. So team, come on up. You're going to lead us through a song. We're going to open up the front. This a space for you to come and pray if you'd like. You just need some space to yourself. And sometimes we need to respond with our bodies whether you're in a cistern, whether you're on a wagon ride, whether you're somewhere in between. I just want us to be still and perhaps the wild animal called the soul that the spirit is seeking is coming out for an appearance. And maybe to listen to what the spirit wants to say to the soul. And so as they lead us through a couple of songs here, just choose surrender. Choose to lift your eyes up. Choose to relinquish control and then notice in the darkness, God is there. He is with you.